Well, it is great to be back. We had a, uh, we had a wonderful vacation last week, um, but it is amazing to be back home. It's great to be back in Kansas. We, we don't do a lot of family vacations. We don't take a lot of trips together, and so every time we do, it's kind of a learning experience when we go someplace together. We, we kind of learn how much we can put up with each other, how much of each other we can stand, and, and this this last trip, four days away in, you know, in, in Nashville, we learned that the limit is about four days, maybe just, maybe just a little bit less than four days. And, and part of the, you know, while we had a great time, part of the problem was it was really warm down in Nashville. It was hotter here, and it was more humid here, but it was really warm down there. Thankfully, the, the uh, hotel had a pool, which was really nice, and we made use of that a lot. But we didn't feel like doing a lot of sightseeing. We didn't feel like going to a lot of places. So we took a few trips here and there. And one day we went to the mall. And uh, growing up in this area, going to the Cross County Mall over here, I thought that was a mall when I was a kid. Yeah, I, th- I thought that was it. Like, look at this, all these stores. There are bigger malls than that in places. I don't know if there's any smaller malls, but there are bigger malls than that one, and we went to this mall. It was amazing. It was just just absolutely incredible. We had a great time walking around, going to different stores. One thing we learned, though, was that Connor had never seen an escalator before. This was a completely new experience. Now, when it comes to elevators, Connor is great. Connor understands elevators. When he goes to Eastern twice a week during the school year, he knows elevators. He, he can run elevators. He knows how to push the button. He knows how to wait. He knows, you know, you tell him hit number two, he hits number two, hit close the door, he closes the door. He does great on elevators. He had never seen an escalator. And we got to the escalator. We needed to go downstairs to the lower level at, at the store, and he just put on the brakes. He was not going to go anywhere, and he... He wouldn't take another step forward. He didn't like the looks of it, didn't care for it all. And it didn't matter what I said, what I did, he was not going to go forward. So we walked around and we found an elevator. Again, he's very comfortable with elevators. Uh, So we went down on the elevator and then we walked around. And when we came back around to this place where the escalators were, he saw the up escalator. And he was fascinated by that, just absolutely fascinated. Still didn't want to go forward, still didn't want to go do it, but he was fascinated. And, and I realized I, I, I was going to have to help him with this. We stood there for a while. He couldn't convince himself to go forward. We watched other people, and, and the people there were so kind. They were so understanding. We would step out of the way, and we'd say, now look, Connor, look, look at this next person. They're going to go up, and they'd go up, and they'd wave at us and smile. And, and with every example, with every person who who rode that thing and somehow survived, you know, Connor would step a little bit closer. And then another person would come, oh, look at this one, you know. And with every one of them, he'd step a little bit closer. I would try to put my arm around him. No, you know, I wasn't allowed to do that. I had to stand back. But it finally, he had watched so many people do it. He was like, he was an inch away from the escalator. And all it took was a little encouragement from his father. I, I pushed him. Very quick, just went boom, and we were riding, and we were on, and he's he's there, and he's leaning back, and and I'm behind him, holding him, and and he's looking around and just amazed, and then about halfway up, I realize 
I have a very short amount of time to teach him how to step off of this thing. Well, that thankfully, that was not a problem. He stepped off just fine. And, but of course, once we rode the up escalator, we had to ride the down escalator. <laughs> so we went back around. And again, this time he stood there and he looked at it. He wasn't sure. And it took just a few seconds and just a little bit of encouragement. The next thing I know, we were heading back down. I think we probably could have just stayed there all day. And, uh, and ridden the escalator. I think he would have been absolutely fine with that. But you know, it struck me that there are times when we are a lot like Connor. We know we need to move forward. We know we need to go that next step. We know we need to, to, to start looking ahead and moving forward, but we are afraid. We're scared. Sometimes we're scared of failure. We're scared that it's not going to work out. Sometimes we're scared of, well, we don't know what's next. We're comfortable here. We're comfortable doing things the way we are now. If I take that next step, what's going to happen? I don't know what the next step is going to be like. We're afraid of abandoning the familiar because we understand life here. We understand life as it is. We know where we are right now. And so we get scared of moving forward. It's scared of moving forward in our faith. You know, if I take that next step, if I volunteer, if I help out, if I take that step that gets me closer to Jesus, what's that going to be like? Sometimes we're afraid of moving forward in relationships. You know, we're afraid of taking that next step with that other person. And so we put the brakes on because we don't know what's next. And, and so we try to stay in the same place. And you know what happens when you stay in the same place? You, you grow stale. You grow stagnant. You just exist. That's not thriving. And I think that's why here at the end of the letter of 1 Peter, Peter takes us to the church. Throughout the letter, Peter has addressed us as individuals. He has addressed us as exiles living in a country that is against us, uh, that is hostile to us. He has addressed us as family members who are seeking to make Christ known to each other. And here, in chapter 5, he addresses us as a church. And what he shows us is, we thrive best when we thrive together. We're going to look at the first five verses of 1 Peter chapter 5. Peter shows us we thrive best when we thrive together. He starts out and he says, So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the suffering of Christ as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Now, likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility towards one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Peter describes the life of a thriving church. And he begins with the elders. And what he shows us is that we thrive best with leadership that is invested in the flock. Peter begins these instructions on the relationships within the church by addressing the elders. And you notice it's a very matter-of-fact address here. He very matter-of-factly addresses that churches will have 
elders. There's no question as to whether or not you should have elders. Will they have elders? If they should have elders, no. They will have elders. That is the example. That is the way that Peter writes. And he, he draws from his own experience. He calls himself an elder. So he draws from his own experience as an elder, and then he points ahead to Jesus as the chief shepherd. And just as we saw in other relationships that Peter has written about here, Peter wrote about servants and their masters. He wrote about wives and their husbands. The emphasis in all of those relationships is on serving one another. The kind of service that draws people to Christ. The other night at our elders meeting, I read this passage to our elders. And I was sharing this with them and telling them what I was going to be preaching about. And, and I was sharing especially verses 2 and 3 where, it, where he tells us, shepherd, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And I got to that shameful gain, and they kind of laughed, and they said, what shameful gain is there in this job? Yeah, no one told us we could make shameful gain in this job. And Well, you can't, guys. I don't know how they made shameful gain, but, but uh, you know, there was some question about elders serving for greedy for money. How does that work? None of them are, are paid off to do the job. Every one of them recognizes that the role that they serve in this church is a sacrifice of their time, of their energy, and of their focus. And more than that, their wives recognize that this is a sacrifice of their time, energy, and their focus. And, and I have to tell you, these men love this church. These men love this community. They love you. You are on their hearts and their minds. You are in their prayers every day. And I have tremendous respect for them. There has been a big move in American society today with what we call the millennial generation. Millennials, about what, 25 to 35, 20, 20 to 35 year olds, we call them the millennial generation. There's a big move, and, and churches, Christians are concerned when they study the millennial generation because there's, there's a big move with them when it comes to church. There are two groups within the millennials that we are concerned about. We call them the nuns and the duns. The, the nuns and the duns. Now, the nuns are people who, when you ask them what religion they are affiliated with, they respond by saying, none. Now, in, in years past, people may have responded by saying, well, I was raised Catholic, or my grandparents went to a Baptist church, but we have so distanced ourselves from our religious heritage, from our Christian heritage, that a great number of people in this new generation, when you ask them what their religious experience is, what their affiliation with is, they say none. They have none at all. Several years ago, I was at a wedding. And a wedding was held in a church. And to make room for the wedding, they had moved the church furniture from the auditorium into the foyer. So all this stuff was, was out in the foyer. And, and to get to the reception you had to walk by all that stuff in the foyer. And I'm standing there, and there's the communion table out in the foyer. Now, their communion table was very long, and it was very low, and across the front, it had the words, in remembrance of me, just like this one. But it was a very long and low table. And as I'm standing there in the foyer waiting for my, you know, my lunch, my roast beef, and, and everything that was going to be at the buffet, there was a guy standing next to me, and he kept looking at that table. He would study it. And he'd look around, and he'd look back at the table. And, and again, it was a very long, low communion table. And finally, it's like this light went off, and he goes, 
That's where they put the body. And I, I said, what? He said, when they have funerals here, they put the casket on top of the table. That's why it says, in remembrance of me. That man was a nun. <laughs> he had no clue what a communion table would be used for. It was not a part of his background. It was not a part of his experience. He had nothing to tie that table to, so he had worked hard on figuring it out. I, I did straighten him out, but that man was a nun. There's another group, though, and that other group is the Duns. And the Duns are not unaffiliated with a church. They are anti-affiliated. The Duns have been to church. They probably grew up in church. At one time in their lives, they were very involved in church. And then they had had enough church. And they are done. Now, does that mean that they are unspiritual? No. They can be very, very spiritual people. Does that mean that they don't read their Bibles and pray? No. They read their Bibles. They pray. They love Christian music. They, they love spiritual things. They love those things, but they are done with church. They have been through the politics. They have been through the problems. They have been through the arguments. They have been through the hypocrisy. And they have simply stepped away and said, I am done with that. Now, if I'm completely honest with you guys who are here, there are a great number of duns who listen to our podcasts every week. You know, we, we put my sermons up on the internet. People listen to them. Every week, people listen to them. There is something in the area of 100 to 125 people every week who listen to the various messages that I have preached, and they, they listen to those. I, I keep track of them. A lot of them are people, well, some of them are you. Some of them are you, you know, maybe you want to hear it again. I, I can only imagine why you'd want to hear it again. You know, or maybe you missed Sunday, so you want to get caught up, and so you're listening to it. Maybe it's a friend of yours or someone who's connected to the church, but they're far away, and so they stay connected. But a great number of people who listen every week are done with church. They like what they hear. They find the messages encouraging. They really enjoy them. They contact me. They send me messages every now and then and tell me how much they appreciate it because they say the messages encourage them, but they are done with church. They are not going to church. I read passages like 1 Peter 5, and I look at verses 1 and 2, and it says, So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising, insight, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you. And I would ask the Duns, who are very spiritual but not coming to church, who are your elders? Who is it that's exercising oversight over you? You know, as I get older, I find I'm less concerned when it comes to church. I'm less concerned about worship styles. Sometimes we get worked up about worship styles. I'm also less concerned sometimes about sermons and, and other things going on. And I'm more concerned about relationships. I'm more concerned about 
Who is it that's in a relationship with me? Who is it that's taking care of me? Who's going to be there to catch me when I fall on that really bad day? Who can I count on to help me through that time? Who's going to shepherd me? Who's going to lead me? Who is going to encourage me? And when I fail, who's going to correct me? I need accountability. We all do. The duns need accountability. And I just want to tell you, those, those kind of relationships are alive. Those kind of relationships are living, and they are active, and, and I find those relationships here. And, and I, I, I hope that other people see the need for that, that we're not just out there on our own. We, we're not just out there doing our own thing, but we need each other. We need relationships. A thriving church starts with leadership that is invested and involved in the life of the church. From there, Peter shows us that we thrive best with a forward focus. And this can be a big issue in churches. I doubt it's going to get much better in the days to come. We were talking about this in Sunday school today. We tend to get sentimental. We talk about the good old days sometimes. We talk about how it used to be. You know, I, I know I do. I get sentimental. I talk about the good old days. Every now and then I look at something that's going on in the world, something that's happening in the news, and something that's causing problems with Christians or causing problems with churches, and I stop and I think, you know, Grover Seifler didn't have to think about this. Back in the 1960s when Grover was the preacher here, Grover didn't have to think about these things. Sometimes I look at the things that are happening in the world and how they affect the church, and I stop and I think, you know, Bill Irwin never had to think about this. He never had to worry about those things. And I get a little sentimental, and I'm like, why couldn't I be preacher back then? Well, because I was like three years old, so that would have been a problem. But I remind myself, we can't go backwards. We can't keep looking backwards. God called us to thrive here. God called us to thrive now. And I have to believe that if God has called us to thrive in 2015, then God will equip us. He has equipped us to thrive in 2015. So after Peter addresses the kind of servant leadership that the church needs, that the church needs shepherds, and you notice that word shepherd, the very image, the, the very word itself invokes images of, of nurture and, and protecting and guiding and feeding, of caring for the flock. After he addresses that kind of leadership, he points to the ultimate goal. He says in verse 4, and when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Now let me ask you a question, and this is a tough question. Let's see if you're paying attention. Verse 4, and when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Has that happened yet? Has the chief shepherd appeared? Has anyone looked up in the sky and saw Jesus yet? No? Okay, good. We're all on the same page. So we need to keep doing this stuff because that hasn't happened yet, right? We need to keep doing this stuff because that's the goal and that hasn't happened yet. The chief shepherd hasn't appeared, so we can't stop. That means we can't settle for today. We can't settle for the past. We can't settle and say, I want things to be just the way they are now. Or I want things to be the way they used to be. We can't go back. We can't do that. It means we can't make the goal to, for things to be the way they used to be. We can't, look at, we can't look ahead at 2016 and say, why can't 2016 be like 1952? We can't. Why can't 2016 be like 1982? Why can't 2016 be like 2015? It can't. It just can't. That means we have to always be looking ahead, always be looking at where we're going. That means we have to concentrate on visions that push us 
Visions like gather, grow, and serve, something that constantly is out there in front of us, something that's guiding our, 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 the things that we do today so that we, we know where we're going to be tomorrow, we know what we're going to be doing tomorrow, we're going to gather, we're going to grow, we're going to serve, and we have to keep on asking our questions, what, what is the ultimate goal in what we're doing? It also means we don't take our eyes off Jesus. We have one goal, to be faithful until he comes. That's that's what the elders are called to demonstrate, faithful until he comes. You notice in verses 2 and 3, he refers to the elders as shepherds. And then in verse 4, he refers to Jesus as the chief shepherd. And he tells the elders, serve willingly just like Jesus. Serve eagerly just like Jesus. Serve as an example just like Jesus. But it's not just the elders. It's something we're all called to do. It's something that we all draw from. Because a church that is thriving is a church that's full of people whose hearts are synchronized in service. So after addressing the elders, after making sure the leadership is, is Christ-focused, that the church is Christ-focused, Peter turns his attention to the whole church. He says in verse 5, Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. And then he says, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility towards one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Think about the different groups that Peter has addressed all through this letter. He has addressed servants and masters. He has addressed husbands and wives. He has addressed elders and the younger. And here he addresses everyone. And he says, all of you, all of you, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. Something special happens when we're all committed to the same thing. Something special happens when we're all committed to doing the same thing. When we have the same heart, when we have the same attitude, we have the same service, we have the same humility. Wednesday, 21 of us, I think it was, 21 of us went up to Tuscola to Flesser's Candy Kitchen for lunch. And we had a, we had a great time. It was the, it was the teenagers, they... There are slightly older, very, very fun group of people that we have here in the church. We all went up to Flesser's for, for lunch in Tuscola, and they had a table set for us, and most of us were able to, to fit around that table. We gathered around, and we were just having a great time, and as we all sat down, someone said, Brett, did you see what the special is today? And I said, what's the special? And they said, the special is liver and onions. Now, I love liver and onions. I've told you that before. I love liver and onions. But there is a portion of the general population, small though they may be, that does not have the same appreciation of liver and onions that I and very few other people do. So there's always a problem when you choose liver and onions. The problem is you may offend someone else. When you choose liver and onions, you may offend them during the meal because they have to look at it, and then you may offend them after the meal because they have to talk to you. And so I did something that I think was pretty wise. I turned to Viva, who is on my right, and I said, Viva, what are you having? And she said, I'm having liver and onions. And I turned to Susan Vale, who is on my left. I said, Susan, what are you having? I'm having liver and onions. 
And I did a quick survey, and a lot of people, I don't know how much liver they had, but I think we, I think we cleaned them out, you know. A lot of people at the table, that wonderful teenager crowd that's a little bit older, they all, many of them had liver and onions. So at that point, I was like, well, then I'm in. If, if that many of us are doing it, then we're all going to do it. See, if we're all committed, if we're all committed to liver and onions, we're all going to smell the same. <laughs> no one is going to feel bad about their breath. No one else is going to feel superior about their breath. And besides that, Nancy Carrion always has mints in her purse. And I think we cleaned her out of mints, so we, we did very well with her, having her along. That was, that was great. See what happens in verse 5? Clothe yourselves. All of you. All of you clothe yourselves with humility towards one another. When we're all doing that, when we're all serving, when we're all of that same heart and same mind, there is no, there's no confusion. There's no person over here expecting to be served and no one over here wondering why they're serving everyone. We're all doing it. We're all committed to that. And then he even gives a reason. He quotes Proverbs 3, verse 4. Proverbs 3, 4 says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility, because God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So let me ask you this. Here's another question. It's a tough one. Can you thrive if God is opposed to you? <laughs> no, you can't thrive if God is opposed to you. Can you be like Jesus if God is opposed to you? No, you can't be like Jesus if God, there's no way around that. So clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility towards one another. It's an interesting phrase, clothe yourselves. It's only used a couple of times. It's it's very rare phrase. It's seldom used and only in very specific settings. This is the kind of clothe yourself that would be used of a slave as a slave was preparing to serve a group of people. The slave would wrap a towel around his waist, or he would put on an apron, and then he would serve. Does that draw anything particular to mind? Is that something maybe you've seen before? The night before he was crucified, when he was betrayed, Jesus took the disciples to the upper room. He took off his outer garment. He wrapped a towel around his waist. He clothed himself with humility, and he washed his disciples' feet. Do you remember what he said afterwards? In John 13, verses 12 through 15, Jesus said, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and rightfully so, because I am. If then your teacher and Lord has washed your feet, you ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done for you. You see, that's the example to the elders. That's an example to the youngers. That's an example to the servants and the masters, the husbands and the wives. That's for everyone. We serve like Jesus while we wait for Jesus. Clothing yourself with humility towards one another really means clothing yourself with Jesus. It means wrapping His love around you so that you can love others. It means wrapping His compassion around you so that you can you can serve others. It means wrapping His forgiveness around you so you can forgive others. It means wrapping His servanthood around you. And the result is you receive a blessing. 
The result of doing that is, is you receive a blessing. If you look on down into verses 6 and 7, Peter goes on and he says, Humble yourselves therefore under the, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time He may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on Him because He cares for you. I love that promise. Casting all your anxieties on Him because He cares for you. Last week, Connor's anxiety was riding an escalator. That was his anxiety. He had, it had him stopped in his tracks. He had never seen an escalator before. He had no idea what an escalator was. All he saw was teeth and movement and some confusion, and he was scared. And he said, I can't do it. But his father was there to wrap his arm around him, to calm him, to reassure him. And when the time came, give him a push and shove him on to that escalator. Cast all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. My guess is there might be anxieties that have you paralyzed. There might be things going on in your life that have you paralyzed and absolutely stopped. And you're saying, I don't know what to do with this. I don't know what to do with this problem. I don't know what to do with this relationship. I don't know what to do with this diagnosis. I don't know what to do with this sickness. I don't know what to do with these feelings. I don't know what to do with this sin I have gotten myself caught up in. The good news is, you have a family here. You have elders who will shepherd you, who shepherd you, and you have others who love you and who will wrap the compassion of Christ around themselves and serve you in humility, who will help you, who will serve you, who will bless you, and who will care for you like Jesus. This table reminds us of that connection. This table reminds us that there is blood that makes us family. There is blood that connects us, that joins us, that makes us one. Blood that points us to service and sacrifice. And, and no, we don't put a casket on the table. But there is a body. The body of Jesus. The one who not only wrapped himself in, in human clothes, but took on the, the form of a servant. He laid down his life for us to bring us together. There is blood that points to us to service and to sacrifice. And there is the promise as we gather at this table week after week that one day our chief shepherd will appear. And one day he will crown us with a crown of unfading glory. That's, they used to do those in the, uh, the old Olympic games. You know, you've seen the crown of laurel leaves that they would wrap around their heads. And you know, those, those there, there was no gold medals, you know, for the for people who won the awards. You got a crown of leaves that was it and you take that home and you say look what i did you know after you've won the marathon you take that home and you say look what i did and then the next day it was a little more brown <laughs> and the day after that it was a little more brown and finally after a few weeks it would just turn to dust and fall apart he says we can't look back at what we did then he, when he appears, when the chief shepherd appears, he will crown you with a crown of unfading 
glory, a crown that never grows old, a crown that isn't about what happened back in 1952, 1982, or even 2015, but a crown about what Jesus has done for you.